you're an early stage Web3 founder, apply to our award-winning accelerator program, Basecamp at outlierventures.io slash Basecamp. We write your first $50,000 check and give you access to 200 mentors, including many of the leading Web3 founders, and a network of 1,000 of the world's leading investors and exchanges. We've helped over 30 startups from 15 countries from all around the world, raise $130 million in growth funding, and can help you fast-track product market fit and, where relevant, the launch of your token economy. So today I'm really happy to welcome on the show Anthony Pompiano. Uh, Pomp is one of the most prominent voices in the crypto ecosystem. I mean, I'd be amazed if you haven't heard of him, you haven't encountered any of his media. Uh, he leads a fund valued at um, over $500 million now in early stage tech companies. Um, some of the most notable investments, obviously Bitcoin, he's a big proponent of that, Coinbase, Itoro, BlockFi, Airbnb, so some Web2, Web3 mixed in there. Um, he's built a, a media empire around his persona that includes the Pomp podcast, the Pomp Letter, and a newly launched um, best business show on YouTube. Um, just to give you a context of scale and, and influence that this man has, the Pomp podcast has been downloaded more than 20 million times. Um, I believe the Daily Letter has more than 150,000 investors. I mean, you're kind of relentless in the amount of content you create. You've been an inspiration for me. I, I can't keep up and I don't know how you do it. Um, and, and, you know, across all of those media, you've got a really diverse spectrum of both guests and perspectives. So it's not just finance, it's technology, it's entrepreneurship. Um, it's economics, um, and you know you've got over a million followers, I believe, on Twitter. Again, it, it, all, all kind of well deserved. One thing I didn't know about you was that prior to kind of the blockchain career, you were at Facebook doing product and growth teams. I was. It was. Uh, I feel like there was like a whole stage of uh, people who came out of uh, what I'll call now like the large tech companies. But I joined Facebook was probably. I don't know, 3,800, 4,000 people, something like that, uh, which at the time I thought was massive. Now you look at, you know, uh, whether it's Google, Facebook, Amazon, whatever, you know, the numbers pale in comparison to, uh, to, to what they were, but it was, uh, it was a great experience. I, I, frankly, I learned a ton while I was there, met some amazing people that I'm still friends with today and uh, wouldn't trade the experience for anything. Yeah. And of course, Facebook is a very relevant topic when we're going to be talking about the metaverse. Obviously, they recently announced that they are transitioning to a metaverse company. I guess anybody that's been watching what they're doing remotely, that's not a surprise, right? Oculus and various other things. They've, this is clearly not um, a knee-jerk decision. This is part of a long-term strategy. So definitely going to be interested to get your perspective there. But some of the reasons why I wanted you on the show, I mean, uh, aside from the fact that I think I've been trying for over a year, so we finally bagged you. I don't know how we did it. Um, but... Uh, so I think a lot of people wrongly consider you as this Bitcoin maxi just because you've been such a strong advocate for it. But actually, you know, if you look at the guests that you've had, um, you've consistently hosted people from across the Web3 ecosystem. Um, you were a very early investor in what you might class as the metaverse, digital art, NFT digital art, virtual real estate. Definitely want to unpack that journey a little bit for you. And I believe almost exactly one year ago to the day, September 21st, you wrote um, to your audience that you thought the next big bet was going to be on digital art. Back then, it was like sub 10 million in market cap, which is kind of almost unbelievable to, to think, right? Um, you laid out an argument why that could 6,000x, and you know that probably felt really bombastic at the time. Um, you've just uh, sent a new, a new letter out almost a year to the date saying you made a mistake. It's going to be much bigger. 
Um, so, of course, like what, be- what better time to, to bring you on to, to discuss that? And I'm really keen to understand how you see the metaverse, not as just like a technical revolution, but an economic one, a financial one. I know concepts around financial freedom and generational wealth are really important to you. Um, and I'm really interested to explore that generally, also how you see Bitcoin's role in it. So if we could, like maybe we start at the top, you know, I kind of regard you as a macro investor and Bitcoin is just one of those things that you're investing in. Um, we just had Ralph Palon, another very famous macro investor, uh, and he laid out his argument for exponential assets. I'm always really excited when very credible macro investors tell me what I already know, but like just uh, to, to convince me, because sometimes you doubt it, right? I, I think we're maybe beyond doubting now, but certainly the last couple of years, it's quite natural to have a bit of a wobble. Um, and so it's nice to hear those things reinforced. But I think you, you, really, you articulate really well that you see blockchain generally as both a monetary revolution um, and a technological revolution. So maybe we could start there. Could you tell us the distinction between those two things and, and its importance? Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, this just gets at the heart of this whole like conversation around maximalism. And I think that most people want to uh, paint a broad brush and they either think maximalism is good or maximalism is bad. But I think, frankly, uh, that's somewhat of an elementary perspective of maximalism. Uh, if you think about uh, the difference between a currency and a technology, Nobody, for the most part, adopts a currency because of the technology, right? It, the currency is adopted because of a shared belief system, a, a social construct, um, and then a uh, kind of adherence or, or a buy-in to a monetary policy. And so in the United States, uh, you know, physical cash actually sucks to use for most purchases. Um, and if you were to think about uh, the technology as the driver, you would be confused. But when you think about the U.S. as one of the largest, most important economies in the world, and it has a reserve currency of that economy in the dollar, and we all believe that it has value, and we're all willing to spend it or accept it in transactions, then it makes a lot more sense as to why uh, that's been adopted. It's not because of technology, it's because of the monetary asset um, and, and kind of the monetary principles. Now, you can argue whether it's good or bad, but that, that's what drives adoption. Technology, on the other hand, for the most part, uh, gets adopted because of the technology uh, superiority or the features, the functionality of the technology, right? The reason why today we are not watching VHS tapes and instead we are doing streaming is because streaming is a technologically superior way to consume that content. It's lower cost, it's faster, it's more reliable, etc. And so I think that by separating out monetary assets, which rely on uh, adherence to kind of a monetary policy, uh, and then technology, which relies on kind of technical superiority, you get to uh, this belief of we all are monetary maximalist, right? So forget blockchain and crypto and Bitcoin all that stuff for a moment. If you live in the United States, you're a U.S. dollar maximalist. You get paid in dollars, you save in dollars, you invest in dollar-denominated assets, you pay your government in dollars, etc. You're, you're a dollar maximalist. If you live in Mexico, you're probably a peso maximalist, right? Paid in pesos, save in pesos, invest in peso-denominated assets, pay your government in pesos. Same thing through the euro all the way around the world. And so 
the end state or the natural state of a monetary asset is maximalism. It's very rare to find somebody who uh, spreads their wealth and they get paid in three different currencies. They save in three different currencies, et cetera. It's, it's a maximalistic um, kind, kind of uh, experience or mechanism. That's not good or bad, right? That's just how a human's relationship with money has always been. And so I think that uh, when you look at Bitcoin, uh, there's this belief in Bitcoin as a monetary maximalist. It essentially is just a fancy way of saying, I denominate my life in Bitcoin. So when I think of my uh, portfolio, I think of it in terms of Bitcoin. When I think about making a purchase, I am converting what is the dollar amount that I'm spending here to what is it in Bitcoin. And so I'm a Bitcoin maximalist from a monetary perspective. Now, that doesn't mean that nothing else in the industry is going to accrue value. It means that I'm actually a monetary maximalist, but a technology uh, competitor. And, and what that means is when you look at most of the other, if not all of the other technologies or, or kind of platforms in the space, they're not competing to be money. Right? They, don't, they don't have a, a kind of a, a sole desire to be a decentralized platform for money. Instead, what they're competing on is uh, fastest throughput, uh, cheapest fees, uh, the most composability, the most you know, uh, kind of global um, you know, feature-rich uh, platforms. And, and so what you get into is a technology competition. Uh, and I think that the equivalent there in the legacy world, if you thought of it from like an analogy perspective, would be nobody's like an iOS maximalist. Right? Nobody thinks only iOS has value, Android doesn't. Nobody is a Python maximalist. Python has value, nothing else does. Uh, all the way to even specific websites. Nobody thinks that only Amazon is the only e-commerce uh, site that has uh, you know, any value. Instead, what you get is an understanding of uh, competition, and you also get an understanding um, of competition being actually a positive thing because the end consumer ends up with kind of the best experience, the cheapest experience, et cetera. And so I think that's what we're basically watching everywhere else is Bitcoin is this monetary maximalistic view of the world, uh, and that's actually healthy. Ma maximalism is important. It's the, uh, it's the historical um, uh, kind of uh, trend more than it is an outlier. But then from a technology standpoint, like – I have no clue. Does Ethereum or Solana or Polkadot or uh, Binance Smart Chain or whatever win? I, I have no clue. And, and frankly, I don't know if there's a, a maximalistic perspective of only one of them wins, right? You, you actually may get all of them to win to some degree. Uh, but, but I tend to think that the technology competition is very positive and understanding what they're competing on uh, around throughput and fees, et cetera, can inform investors on the best way to invest in the space. But if you're investing in, you know, use Solana as an example, because it's uh, appreciated so much this year. The person who's investing in Solana and the person who's investing in Bitcoin, they're investing for two different purposes. Like no, nobody is saying, hey, I'm going to sell my Bitcoin to buy Solana because I think that Solana is a better monetary asset and vice versa. Nobody is selling Solana to go buy Bitcoin because they're like, oh, I think that Bitcoin has cheaper fees, faster throughput and is a better platform to go do A, B and C, you know, functionality on top of. And so I think that. That's good because in the legacy world, like nobody is selling their dollars to go and buy oil, right? And nobody is selling their oil to then go and buy uh, some other asset other than traders.
So only in the finance world do people look at a multi-asset kind of universe and say every dollar out the door is going to the place where I think it has the highest potential outcome or, or appreciation. Other than that small group of kind of professional traders, everyone else says, look, I need a little bit of money. I need a little bit of equities. I need a little bit of commodities. I need a little bit of, you know, whatever. And so I think that's what we're ha is happening in the, in the crypto industries. We're getting much more uh, kind of fragmentation or, or verticalization, uh, which leads to specialization. So it's nearly impossible at this point to be a expert in the monetary assets, in decentralized finance, in NFTs, in layer ones, in layer twos, in the metaverse. Like, you got to start to pick where, where's your advantage? Where's your, where's your, are you intellectually interested? Um, but I think this is all healthy and it frankly just shows like a big maturation for, uh, for the ecosystem in general. Yeah. So if we stay at the, the Bitcoin level, um, as a form, another form of monetary maximalism, um, so how, how is it in, in some ways different, right? So presumably for the first time, irrespective of where you're a citizen, you now have an alternative for monetary maximalism. And like, how do you see that interplay between fiat-based systems like in Salvador, for example, and, and, and Bitcoin? Yeah, it's a fascinating question that I think is only going to become louder and louder over time. Um, there's a couple of things that uh, I always you know, kind of mention when, when I'm talking about this. The first is most currencies... Uh, their strength is relative. So for example, uh, in the United States, real estate has been a fantastic investment over the last 50, 60 years. Why? Well, the dollar has been devalued. And so real estate prices go up because they're denominated in dollars. If you look at the stock market since 1971, it's up and to the right in a 45 degree angle almost perfectly. Why? Well, the dollar has been devalued right about that same rate. And so you get kind of this nice continued growth. If you denominate the stock market in gold, it's down, even though gold is down against the dollar. And so you start to look at some of the stuff, you say, okay, like there's, there's definitely not just true uh, net value accrual to these assets. So it's all relative. Well, when you compare currencies, they're actually relative themselves. So a great example is there's a, uh, a gentleman in Mexico, I think he's like the third or fourth richest guy in Mexico, uh, Ricardo Salinas, and, and he's become well known in the crypto world because uh, he's had some videos go viral that basically talking about Bitcoin and, and fiat currencies. And you know, to hear a wealthy man say, hey, fiat currencies are trash is pretty eye-opening for folks. Um, and one of the things that he talks about, and I'm going to get the exact numbers wrong in the dates, but, but directionally, this is correct. He basically says, look, when I was a kid, you know, it was like uh, uh, maybe uh, uh, 10 pesos equaled $1 or something. Today, it's like 20,000 pesos equal $1. And that's over like a 30, 40-year period, right? So, so kind of a long time frame and very big um, kind of devaluation of the peso against the dollar. What that doesn't account for, though, is at the same time that the peso has been being devalued against the dollar on a relative basis, the dollar has also been devalued as well. So if you were to actually measure the devaluation of the peso against a hard asset versus the, um, the, the, the kind of moving target of the dollar, it actually would be, look even worse than it does. And so I think like stuff like that, people are starting to wake up to now. Now, when it comes to Bitcoin, you know, there's a lot of value in having a global unit of account. 
where everyone says there is only one single currency. There is none of this relative strength stuff. We all operate using one. Uh, and the beauty of that is that nobody controls it. Nobody can create more of it. Nobody can devalue it. You can't enrich yourself through your control of this asset, which I think you know is becoming more and more important over time. And then the last thing I'll say on uh, kind of the global nature is every economy has their own reserve currency. So in the U.S. economy, we have the reserve currency of the dollar. In the Mexico economy, we have the uh, the peso. If you go to Europe, right, we have the euro, etc. You go through the world, and every economy has their own uh, reserve currency. Now, for the most part, those economies are defined by geographic borders. So the American economy is because of the United States borders. And yes, we do business with people outside of the American economy, and, and maybe the lines are graying a little bit. But for the most part, there are some sort of geographic boundaries that, that are important. Well, we now have a way bigger economy on the rise, and it's not bound by a geographic uh, boundary. It is the digital economy. And so if you were to look out 50 years from now, are the physical economies or these like virtual uh, economies, these digital economies going to be bigger? I think the digital economies are going to be bigger. But the difference is that there is no global reserve asset for that global digital economy. And so right now what happens is, you know, if you and I are in two different countries and we don't use, uh, let's say, dollars, there's currency exchanges. That there's all sorts of, of kind of weird things that happen. And so I think naturally, uh, Bitcoin specifically is going to continue to rise in global adoption and eventually will become the reserve asset of that digital economy. Um, it doesn't mean that fiat currencies go away. It doesn't mean fiat currencies even actually uh, go to zero. I think that it's just um, you're going to still get the dollar as the reserve currency of the U.S. economy. And now in the digital economy, you're going to get some digital currency as that reserve uh, asset. And, you know, less about uh, I'm convinced that it should or shouldn't happen. And more so as a market observer, I think, you know, the writing's on the wall and, and kind of it's going to be hard to put the genie back in the bottle at this point. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is probably where we we align or converge, which is like we're going to talk about the metaverse, right? And so metaverse can just be an expression of that digital economy as it becomes more immersive. Um, there is perhaps more kind of economic activity that happens there. And so naturally, um, it is both, again, a technological revolution and an economic one. And presumably that would then have its own uh, reserve currency. And I guess from what you're saying, you're, you're not ruling out the possibility equally that fiat-based systems might then make Bitcoin part of their reserve currency in order to, to stay relevant, presumably, right, um, in, in that context. Um, so, so let's kind of talk about your, your journey into the metaverse. I don't know like at what point, you know, whether that language is relevant to you now or has been relevant, but certainly in some of the kind of atomic units of, of, of what we might describe as the metaverse NFTs. So um, I believe you began buying NFTs in 2020, right? It was in mid, mid, early to mid 2020. What was that inflection point that it piqued your interest and um, you began to kind of invest into the space? Yeah. Um... To be honest, it, it was less about uh, NFTs, like, like the technology itself. I always say like when you start with the technology, uh, most people aren't going to get it. Like, why do I need a non-fungible token? What is fungibility? Like all that kind of stuff. Uh, what I ultimately uh, started off down this journey with was this idea of digital art. 
And so um, it's kind of a crazy story in, in uh, hindsight, but uh, I don't remember what the first thing I read about digital art, but I started to kind of uh, get wind of, hey, there's there's a lot of this digital art that is being created. Um, and so I started searching around online. I then literally searched on Twitter. And I literally think I searched like hashtag digital art or so, like something that was like so stupid. Uh, but I was scrolling through and as, uh, a, a, as crazy as a story can get, one of the folks that I came across was Felocious. And so I really liked uh, the art. Why do I like that like pop art style? I have no clue. You, you know, art is kind of the, the beauty is an eye, the beholder. For whatever reason, I like that art. I think other art isn't so cool. So, you know, it, it caught my attention. And so I reached out uh, to Felocious and I said to him, I said, look, you know, let's just get on a call. I'd love to, to learn more about what you're uh, doing and, and learn more about your art. And I think at the time, Felocious had uh, sold one NFT ever. And so I, you know, learned a little bit about the story and I said, look, I'd like to commission, uh, some pieces from you. Uh, basically just tell me what the most is that you've ever sold, uh, any of your art for, and I'll just buy six pieces at, uh, at that price. Um, and for me, it was like, look, I have no clue where this world's going, but it seems interesting. Um, it wasn't a ton of money, but it, but it was enough where like, you know, I, I made me think about it. And then I said, you know, look, if I ever go uh, with my buddy Jason and, and we sell it in the art, we'll give you some of the upside, right? So this is like the most, uh, I kind of looked at it like a founder uh, investment, right? It was like, we're going to make this as friendly as we can, um, you know, and, and uh, this isn't so much like, how do we make a bunch of money? It was more so almost in the beginning of like, this is cool. And so we, we got a couple of pieces. Uh, and then you fast forward a year and folks just sold $20 million of art, became one of the highest grossing artists in the world. And I don't think that Felocious, myself, Jason, or anyone else in May of 2020 thought that that was going to happen, right? So it's like some of it's just like, you know, you make some uh, decisions that you think are good at the time and then tailwinds take over and, and there's this kind of mania. But the crazy part for me was um, I did all this in May and it took a little while for us to get the pieces made and, and all that. Um, but I didn't write about it publicly until September. And when I wrote about it, uh, I called it digital art because I, I, again, the technology almost didn't matter to me. And my whole thesis was like, well, if Bitcoin's going to be bigger than gold for all the reasons that we, you know, I think most people have accepted, digital art is going to be bigger than physical art, right? It's more divisible. It's more portable. It, it, it's got like all these elements to it that are better than physical art. And nobody had any pushback for the most part, right? The, the, the Bitcoin community, the Ethereum community, uh, kind of all, all these, everyone was fine with it. For some reason, when NFTs got uh, introduced as a terminology into uh, kind of what I would have called the digital art ecosystem beforehand, then it got very tribal and people all kind of started to, to have an opinion and, and all that. And so I think I kind of go back to, again, that technology competition component. I don't care where it gets, like if we can get NFTs built on Bitcoin, great. If Ethereum is the best place, great. If Solana is the best place, great. Like to me, it's less about the underlying protocols uh, because I don't think that decentralization matters in this specific context nearly as much as uh, I think that decentralization of a digital currency matters, right? And so once you basically say decentralization isn't the most important thing and things like throughput, cost, et cetera, are much more important, 
then you basically have a technology competition and, and, and whoever wins wins. And so I think that from those days of like, oh, digital art is cool. And like, frankly, I probably think I'm cooler than I really am. So like, let me go try to find some art that I like to today. I mean, I'm pretty, you know, red pilled, if you will, in terms of uh, the virtual economy is going to be much, much bigger than the physical economy. Uh, I think that the like action to earn uh, as a mechanism. So whether it's, you know, play to earn, which obviously has gotten a ton of attention lately, uh, but everything from, um, you know, the, uh, the example I've been using with people is like, I don't remember if, if you remember there was a, uh, an ICO, and I don't want to say the, the name of the coin, but there was an ICO basically that you put an app on your phone and you did physical activity, like you worked out and then you would earn coins and then you could basically take those coins and like redeem them for like, pri like kind of like a Chuck E. Cheese, like prize, yeah. you know, table or whatever. That uh, for obvious reasons, uh, wasn't the sustainable model, but this whole idea of whether you were getting paid in Bitcoin or you were getting paid some other way, like working out, like earn, like work out to earn. I think that'll be absolutely a thing, right? And, and so whether it's play to earn, work out to earn, or, or some other action to earn, I think is going to be um, uh, very real. And then the last thing I'll say is as I've kind of gotten more and more red-pilled on this like virtual worlds and, and kind of where I think the world is heading, I've been talking to a lot of uh, founders and uh, there, there's one in particular who I recently had a conversation with. But I don't want to say his name only because I'm not sure if he's comfortable with me interpreting this name or not. But, but he basically said to me, look, we already have the low fidelity examples. So you know, I wrote this morning about uh, podcaster. That's a virtual world job, an Instagram model a virtual world job, right? Uh, how many people run Amazon or Shopify stores? A virtual world small business on Main Street, right? Like, but you see the examples. Again, they're they're not great because they don't look as cool as we like to think of virtual uh, reality. They don't, you know, it doesn't require you putting on an Oculus headset, etc. But it, it's definitely a step in that direction. And so, if you zoom out and just say, "Look, let's fast forward fifty years," I think most people are just going to be working somewhere uh, on the internet, whether it's true virtual reality or some version of it. Um, and so in, in, you're going to have that, you need to be able to bring digital assets into that world. And Bitcoin will likely be a huge piece of it because I do think it'll be that reserve asset. But every other asset that you own, you're going to have as some sort of non-fungible asset, right? That there's very few assets that you actually own in the real world that have true fungibility to them. And so if you just look at it on a, a kind of a legacy world basis, let's say that I don't know, we'll, we'll be generous. We'll say 70% of the assets you own uh, need non-fungibility, 30% need fungibility, right? So uh, for example, I need my car, it, it, it's mine, it's nobody else's. If I go to a parking lot and I just, I can't just walk into a regular car, I need my car. Money different, I can put you know $10 on the table so can everybody else, I walk away with the $10. Well, the virtual world is probably not the same thing. 70% will be, you know, non-fungible is important and 30% will be fungible. And so you'll get kind of a coexistence of all this stuff. But I think people are surprised when they hear somebody like me who they, uh, you know, frankly, they generally have thought of me as this Bitcoin maximalist. And I always tell them that like Bitcoin to me is the single most important technology in the world today because it, if you look at the suffering in the world, if you look at the wealth inequality gap, 
think of it through a first principles perspective. How do you fix those problems? These, what I would deem as like the biggest problems in the world. We have to fix the money. And so Bitcoin does that. And so like, to me, it, it, from an importance level, it's Bitcoin. And then everything else is secondary to Bitcoin um, from an importance to the world. But that doesn't mean that there's not going to be a ton of value created and captured by uh, other companies, products, services, et cetera, in this digital world. And so, um, you know, I, I, frankly, I've probably invested way more than people realize in, in everything else um, because I'm just so, you know, loud and, and upfront about the Bitcoin stuff that everything else just kind of gets ignored. Yeah. And I think to kind of build on that thinking around the, the societal importance of Bitcoin, um, you know, I think when when you you think about, as you said, how much of how much value is created in the virtual context now, whether it's formally regarded as work and recognized as work, or might still be regarded as play, um, especially if you think in a gaming context, right? Billions of dollars of investment, time, or money has been invested in platforms, um, and it's locked in. And so, you know, if you're you're twenty one year old. And the majority of your wealth is in gaming skins. You can't go to the bank and get a loan from that, right? You are financially excluded. And so, for me, the most exciting thing about the metaverse as an economic system is all of a sudden, when this stuff's paired up with Bitcoin, it's paired up with stable coins, it's paired up with DeFi, you have a ready made financial system that can be completely inclusive. So I don't know if, if that kind of factors into to some of your thinking around that level of financial empowerment. And then also, I guess, the ability to make generational wealth, right, with, with a very low entry point. So I know a lot of people um, dismiss play to earn because they say, well, to enter the Axie economy, you've got to buy in. It's not like free to play. But the point is, once you're in there, the value you create is yours, right? And it's transferable, and it can be collateralized in DeFi. Yeah, so take Axie as a great example, right? Um, Axie pays out in a non-Bitcoin token. Sure. Axie also could have been built in a way that could pay in Bitcoin. It could stream Satoshis or whatever, right? It chose not to do that for whatever reason. To me, the difference of uh, do you pay in Bitcoin or do you pay in something else doesn't determine whether something is a scam or trying to steal your money or, you know, you can kind of uh, replay all of the things that, that people uh, that are critical of something like Axie would say. Ultimately, the way that I look at this is the mechanism is the most important thing. The idea of playing to earn. Um, is going to become very, very important. And again, it's not just play, it's also you know, all these other actions as well. And what we are watching is the uh, evolution of the idea of a job, right? And so I'll give you uh, some of the low fidelity examples. Historically, if you wanted to write for a living, you could only do one of two things. You could go work at a large media company, where you would basically be a reporter. You had to have the right credentials. You had to uh, write what they told you to write. You had to adhere to their journalistic standards. You had to adhere to what your editors told you. And then you were reliant on that brand being your distribution. It's a very kind of centralized organization, hierarchical structure. The other option that you would have is to write a book. And the only way that you could write a book is if you got a book deal, and then you again, centralized entity, hierarchical structure. 
Well, along comes things like Twitter or Substack. And now all of a sudden, Substack's got, God knows how many people now earning six figures on Substack, getting paid, working for themselves. And they're writing, same words. But rather than publishing it under one of the mainstream media organizations, brand, they're publishing it under their own name or their own you know, kind of publication. And it's working. Twitter, how, who knows how many people make a living based on Twitter, whether directly or indirectly, by doing that. Well, those are both low fidelity virtual jobs and they come at the expense and they take away potential employees of those hierarchical structures. And so when you start to look into the future as to, you know, saying to yourself, okay, I don't want to be in the business of predicting the future. That, that's too difficult. I simply want to be a market observer. And when trends show themselves, I want to believe them because things in motion tend to stay in motion. And so if that's the low fidelity examples, what's the high fidelity examples? And Axie, maybe it's not completely high fidelity, but we're getting closer, right? Of like Substack is kind of the lowest fidelity, write words and, and sell them to people. Now all of a sudden play a game, get paid for it. And so as you start to see this happening more and more, I think what people are going to begin to realize is everyone who's spending a bunch of time right now thinking about crypto is going to end up looking back and being like, man, that was the equivalent of being like, I'm starting an internet company. Now people just have started a company. Of course, you're going to use the internet. You're a fool if you don't use the internet. Same thing with this other stuff, right? Is you're, you're going to be a fool if you don't use these technologies, uh, regardless of what, which exact one you use, but just the, these technologies in general, because it's a better system. It's better way to align the interest of everyone involved from the folks who have created the product or service to the consum uh, consumers of it, the users of it, uh, and other folks that are involved in a transaction. And, and so when you start to understand that this is um, you know, a, a big enough shift where today we call them crypto companies, eventually we just call them companies, you start to say to yourself, I don't know. 90% of everything right now is worthless 10 years from now, 20 years from now. Okay. But that was true in the late 90s as well. How many different ideas did people try? They were the right ideas, either wrong execution or wrong timing. Music streaming, food delivery, pet you know, companies, like all this stuff, right? Webvan, pets.com, all, all the examples. But now 20 years later, we have all that stuff and they've worked. And so I think that the same thing is going to happen with crypto and the metaverse and you know all this type of stuff. If we do another podcast uh, or, or whatever you know kind of uh, uh, manner of content is popular at the time, twenty years from now, we're going to look back and be like, "Man, I remember in two thousand and twenty-one when somebody was trying X, it didn't work, but now we have it, and it is awesome. Like they were really onto something." And so. I think you've got to have this like long-term patience with these trends because it really does take longer than you think it will, but have short-term urgency as investors and builders because you want to accelerate what gets built and, and get that adoption uh, kind of curve really uh, bending in, in your favor. And so if you look at like the metaverse stuff, it's just, to me, it's so clear um, that we're going to live our lives in the digital realm, we, you know, I, I, one of my favorite tweets I've ever tweeted was we already live in virtual reality. 
I go on Twitter every day. I basically visit the virtual square. I peruse my way through. I see what everyone's talking about. Oh, Jamie's talking about this. I want to enter that conversation. I reply. Oh, Jamie said something really interesting. What do I want to do? I want to take his comment. I want to bring it over to this other group of people. So what do I do? I retweet it, right? Or you know what? Jamie's lost his mind today. I don't want to engage in that. So I'm just going to keep scrolling. More likely. More likely. (laughs) Right? But like, like there's all these elements. We don't think of Twitter as a virtual congregation area, right? We think of it as this thing on our phone that we can shut off whenever we want. But right now, you and I are meeting in a lo-fi version of the metaverse, right? We've both through the, we've gone through the portal of our computer and we're meeting in this virtual space and, and we're talking and we can see each other and all this stuff. And then we're going to leave and go away. And so everyone, I think, always looks at like the sci-fi version, you know, that's like 20, 30 years out. What you and I are doing right now, we probably couldn't have done 15 years ago, right? And so it's just like, it's just really cool, I think, to kind of see this stuff happening but you also just have to be patient enough to understand um, it'll take a number of cracks at it from lots of different teams. Uh, but eventually we'll get it. Like, like we will have a true metaverse and you can see some of the early breadcrumbs today. Yeah, and I think that's a really important point. It's certainly really important to me to try to express to people that we are already experiencing the metaverse. It isn't some far off destination. And the reason why that's important is because if we think of it as a far off destination, you kind of sleepwalk into a reality. And we've done that with the web in in many ways. Um, You know, there's lots of problems with the web, the way it is, and the way value is distributed and owned. Um, And actually, that kind of takes us neatly into the Facebook question. So obviously, you know, Facebook's entered the metaverse. Um, In parallel, you know, we were just talking about the idea that actually perhaps most work or economic activity to perhaps use a, a looser term is likely not going to happen within this construct of the corporation. You know, it's going to be much more fluid, whether it's individuals just fluidly interacting peer to peer, presumably some might organize into DAOs, one or several. Um, so what what's the role of an organization the size of Facebook in the metaverse. And I guess, you know, that's not just in the context of media, but of course, you know, they tried to introduce Libra, which is an alternative economic system. I think a lot of governments around the world panicked a little bit. Um, it certainly accelerated a lot of conversations around uh, central bank digital currencies because Facebook had a population bigger than most countries, right? So how do you see the entrance or at least the formal entrance of Facebook into the metaverse? And how do you think like a multinational corporation with shareholders and employees can compete with perhaps more networked, loosely affiliated creators, developers, um, and, you know, general economic participants? Yeah. It's a hard one. I'm laughing to myself because uh, I'm uh, hopefully intellectually honest enough to say, I don't know. I, I really don't know what the, the answer here is. What I do know is that um, two things. One, Facebook will have a place. They have too many people. They, they, I'll never bet against the team at Facebook. right? I work there, super biased. I know many of the people working on this stuff. 
I promise you do not bet against them. Uh, there is a reason why they built a business that is worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, and you don't just forget how to do that. So that's one. Two is uh, the beauty of the kind of metaverse, virtual world, you know, however you want to call this thing. They have no more power than anybody else. And there's so much beauty in that. If they build something people want, they'll get an opportunity and a seat at the table. If they build something that sucks and nobody wants it, it won't matter how many users they have, right? And, and I think that that's where we're headed is when you have these open systems, the, these kind of competitive environments, we return back to what as close to a free market as we can get. And sure, can you have an advantage starting out because you have a big user base, you can market to them, whatever? Sure. But ultimately, as we've seen over and over again in a free market, those who build value win and those who don't lose. And, and so I think that that's you know, one of the exciting parts here is you've essentially flipped the script. If we were building web to social media companies, Facebook will win all day long and twice on Sunday. Why? Because they're able to essentially corner the market, right? They've got so much size and scale and so much money that they can buy you, they can copy you, they can do all these different things that we've seen them do over and over and over again, uh, which some would say is good business and some would say that's crazy. Either way, uh, I think that the um, key here really is it's a new paradigm and therefore me building something and Facebook building something for this new world compete on a much more even playing field than they did in web two. And that I think for those that are interested in the beauty of open systems has to get folks excited. Right. And then when you start to extrapolate it out and say to yourself, okay, what's the winning strategy? What's the winning mechanism? What's the winning technology? That's all up for grab. Like nobody knows. And so the market has determined some things to be valuable, some things not to be valuable up until this point. We'll see what happens moving forward. But I think that as I've gotten older and I spent more time with this stuff, you know, I have very, very deep kind of monetary maximalistic perspective on Bitcoin uh, for the reasons that we discussed. And on everything else, I take a market observer role. I I'm not here to predict the future. I'm not here to... Um, you know, uh, be the person who is arrogant enough to think that I can king make and say, you win or you win. Instead, the market's going to decide. The market is the referee. And, you know, frankly, I, I hope that I am uh, good enough at avoiding mistakes, that I'm an investor in the things that end up working. But I have no advantage more so than anybody else, right? I look at what the market's doing today and I try to make good decisions. Yeah, and I think, look, ultimately, being early, we're all early. Anybody listening to this is early. And as you say, if you're open and honest with yourself, you're open-minded, um, being early enough is sometimes enough, right? You, you don't have to be first. You just have to be be early enough. So, Pomp, look, thanks so much for coming on. I mean, there's so much there's so much stuff I didn't ask you. I just wanted to try to get through some of the, the, the bigger stuff. Um, but I really appreciate your time. Hopefully, it's allowed people to get to know you a little bit better, perhaps from an audience that you haven't yet reached, if that's even possible. I don't know. Um, but other than that, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3.